going to kind of plunge right in. I, uh, I'm super excited to be with Cornerstone. I love Chad and Haley. love their family. I love this ministry. Every time I'm here, guys, I just feel like something's about to break open. Yeah, and you need, you need to know. Sometimes the enemy will try to blind you to your present reality. Um, you'll be comparing to the past or thinking about what could have, would have, should have, or thinking about what, how things need to. You just have to kill all that and just be where God has planted you and then see what he's doing around you. Um, I just asked my wife, I was like, hey, what do you want to do this morning? Just as we're going in, just because my family's with me today. Yeah, and, uh, and she said, just be together. Just be together. Can we just stay together? And that's kind of where our family is right now. You have to know where your family is and where you are right now, you know. And sometimes where you are may not be where your neighbor is, but that, and, and we're so shallow in the way we read one another that we take that as a contradiction, but it's not. It's, it's, God knows what he's doing, and he's bringing us together for a reason. And you don't even know how the stuff going on in your life complements the lives of your neighbor. Um, and so today, I'm, I'm, get, I'm bringing a message today. I hesitated whether, whether to share this or not. I'm very intentionally here today. And it's a weird thing for you to hear a speaker say that, because if you don't know me, you'll be like, I don't want to sound cocky or nothing. It's not that at all. There's a ch- I had a choice, be at the church of 3,500 or be at Cornerstone. And I wanted to be here. Because <laughs> I'm not looking. I just I want to be a part of what is happening here, what God is doing here, and um, I'm thankful for that. But I'm also bringing a word I've never brought to a church before, so um, all right, I won't apologize. My wife tells me you can't apologize, so I'm not going to apologize, but um, hey, check this out with me. Do y'all recognize that lock on the left? Where's that from? Starbucks. Who said that? Eyeballs, right there. If you've not seen that, if if you're not a coffee drinker, analyze that picture. It's kind of a weird picture. You've got the vacant sign up top. Let you know you can go in. You got the stinking $600 door lock on the door that, you know, one of the heavy duty ones that stands up to like high traffic, right? But then you got the code written on the door. Isn't that weird? So you don't need the lock. Do you know why that is? Do you all remember the head of, uh, owner of Starbucks, Howard Schultz, shutting down every Starbucks in the country for two days? Because what, what, they put the locks on there to keep homeless people out. To keep people from the streets out of their Starbucks, to control environment, environmental you know, experiences inside the Starbucks. He felt convicted of that, or whatever the word is. I don't know if Howard Schultz is, I don't believe or necessarily know if he's following Jesus or not, but he felt convicted by that, shut down all Starbucks nationally. Say what you want about Starbucks. I'm not preaching the gospel of Starbucks right now. I'm just saying it was pretty awesome that when they reopened, they had every Starbucks in the country with the code to use the bathroom back up on the door. So every single homeless person could come in that Starbucks and use the bathroom if they needed to use it. Now, take a look at that image on the right. That is the image of the entryway to a pastor's office of a large church that I am in a relationship with. Through my ministry. Now, I've not said where, right? Right? Okay, good. (laughs) Um, There's about 18 pastors on the other side of that door. The reason they put that lock up is to keep people out. 
The reason they put that lock up is to keep people out. But, man, Johnny, homeless people are coming up here all the time asking for stuff, and we just, we just had to put this up. We couldn't, get our, we couldn't get our work done. Here's what the Barna study says at Pepperdine last year. It says that pre- pastors love to preach and teach. Pastors love to, I, to, I warned you, Justin, this is a, I told you, it's like I'm preaching to pastors today, but it's, it's for all of us, all right? It's for all of us. They love to preach and teach. But look at what they, look at 5% love pastoral care, 6% love evangelizing, sharing the gospel. That's a massive national study of pastors from a very diverse pool. Some of these numbers are are real discouraging for me. 10% of pastors love to develop other leaders. What other reason do we have for a shepherd but to multiply shepherds, right, right? And then this is what pastors are good at. 66% love to preach, only 57% think they're any good at it. Which is a lie, because if a pastor is preaching the word of God, that, that scripture is, it never comes away null and void. It's an, it, it's an imperishable seed planted in our heart that leads to the salvation of our souls. But that's the mind state of our pastors. And you do not listen to any of these stats and judge pastors. You stay with me right now. We love our pastors. Amen? We love, every, we love the pastor that's in the 57% and the pastor that's in the 43%. We love those pastors. All right? But this is the state of things, guys. 6% of shepherds believe they can mobilize their sheep into action. 6%. Now, that's a reflection on you. You need to receive it. You're so busy. You're so distracted by the phone. You're like that lady that just, remember, did y'all read about that? Her eye bust open. She was looking at her phone too much. Did you read? I'm not making this up. Like, finally, her eye just, whoop, it just exploded in her head. Which Jesus has a passage about that, something about plucking the eye out to keep you from sinning. But I, I, I think it was Jesus. But um, we are hard to mobilize. You may think that you're not, and your pride sells you that you're tough to mobilize. You're very distracted. You're very distracted. I am too. I am too. We have to fight that. That's why we have to fast. That's why we have to pray. There's a global leadership network study of pastors. The number one priority of pastors in the U.S. is, according to the study, is to uh, disciple families. The number 17 priority among pastors is loving the poor. It's, it doesn't make the top 10. The poor don't, do not make the top 10. It's number 17. And we're all wondering. See, I, I'm in L.A., and all the pastors on the west side of the 405 are like, man, this is about as good. Is the church just dead? Are we never going to have a revival anymore? We're not going to have revival until we're on the other side of the 405. If we keep running from the poor for the rest of our lives, we will never have revival. You may not like messages about the poor. You may not, this, this, you're going to hate this message. All right? Because God has released this into my heart that if we want a revival, we have to foundationally change the target of our ministry. That's what Jesus did in Luke 4, 18. He stood in his hometown synagogue and he said, check it out, everybody. I want to go after the poor, the captive, the blind, and the oppressed. I want to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. The book of Leviticus says some of these folks can't even come into this, into this room that we're in right now. I want to change all that. We're going to go get them. We're going to go lay hands on them. What, what then happened in, in Luke 4, if you remember that moment, is they took Jesus up on top of a hill to throw him down off the hill to kill him. His hometown. They don't want to be told that. But let me tell you, man, Americans don't want to be told that. 
Don't be telling me what, don't, don't be telling me I need to be caring about those, the others, the broken, the poor, the immigrant, the refugee, the, the least of these. I don't want to hear that. I've got my views, I got my, I got my my heart trenched out. I know how I see the world. Don't mess with how I see the world. And yet for pastors, it's heartbreaking because 92% of Christians, according to this study, care what pastors say about global poverty. I can't mobilize my people into action. I'm the 6%. Can't do it. They just won't respond. Well, the study says 92% of your people care about the poor and want to listen. Why, what are you mobilizing them into? And let me blow your mind with this. What do you think the general public outside the church thinks of pastors' views on poverty? How many of them do you think percentage-wise are interested? Think of people outside the walls of the church. Think 10%? Shout it out. How, what percentage of people outside the church do you think care what Pastor Chad or me or anybody else has to say about poverty? Shout it out. 5%. Stinking 88% family. 80, now, 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 don't be, well, why is he getting all flipping? Because look at that, man. People know we are the ones God has called to change history for the most broken in our community. I mean, they know it. Even if they've never learned it, there's something inside them that, that, that they know it. And that's why they get disappointed. They come to gatherings and they're like, man, I thought y'all were changing the world. My wife stalks the children's ministry here. I don't know how she does it because she lives 200 miles away. Remember, you told me all about them praying over refugees. And you told me all about them, you know, the stuff they're doing, the stuff y'all are doing with kids is awesome. You're getting a worldview and an awareness of the broken globally into the hearts of your children. It's awesome. We need that in our hearts too. And it's at the end of Matthew 24 where, I don't know if you remember this, Jesus left the temple and was walking away. When his disciples came up to him to call his attention to its buildings. Do you remember this moment? They've been on the road a long time, Jesus and the disciples. They've seen a lot of hard stuff. And now they're in Jerusalem. And Jesus said a lot of negative stuff about Jerusalem for, for, for a minute. I mean, he, he was saying, man, we're going to go up there. We're going to get persecuted. No, 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 we're not. In Mark 8, Peter rebukes Jesus when he says it. Jesus says, get behind me, Satan, to Peter. I don't think the disciples wanted to believe that when they went to Jerusalem, the the superheroes of the faith, they got these guys' baseball cards, right, that they're going to reject them. And so look at, look at, the, look, look at the, um, the, uh, the verbs here. Jesus left the temple, was walking away, but his disciples came up to him to call his attention to the building. They try to reverse his trajectory. Look at these buildings. And Jesus says, do you see all these things? Things. The key word there, things. Do you see all these things? I tell you the truth. Not one stone here will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. All these things will be gone. I think when Jesus said that, he broke the disciples' hearts. I think they were exhausted. They wanted to believe in something that they could see that was a part of their heritage and their history. And sometimes we do the same thing, man. We get beaten up, so we start looking at what we've built, what we've got, what, what, what we have that signifies that we're, we're, we're the chosen people. We're God's people. And Jesus is up in our faces saying, man, that, none of that stuff, that's things. None of that stuff can be banked on. So they go, they're, they're crushed by this, and they come to Jesus later, just a few moments later, and they say, you got to tell us when it's all going to end. When's all this going to happen? When's it going to end? You can read that passage if you're not careful and think they're saying, please tell us about 
the end times, Jesus. We're ready for that segment of our theology class. That's absolutely not what's happening. They're jacked up. They're exhausted. And they're tired. And so Jesus says to them, don't be deceived. Because see that no one leads you astray. See, we always, when we get tired, we want to know when the end's going to come. When's, when's, when's the next season? You do it in your life too. Jesus, will you just tell me when is the end going to come? And that is the moment you're open to be deceived. That's when you're open to be led astray. And so Jesus goes on and he says, man, listen to me, guys. These folks are going to tell you, tell you I'm up in this room over here. Don't you listen to them. They're going to tell you I'm in this room over here. Don't you listen to them. You can't listen to them. And, and, and I'm telling you, it's going to get worse. You think the building's coming down is bad. Let me, list, let me count for you the ways. It is about to get worse. You can't get tired. You can't grow weary. You can't give up. You've got to stay in there. But he leaves this question, this question, he begs this question. Well, then where are you, Jesus? If you're not in the temple, and, 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 do you know what I'm saying? If you're not in the temple, and if you're not in that room over there, and if you're not in that, where are you? And he doesn't answer the question in Matthew 24. He doesn't even answer the question to the end of the teaching, which is at the end of Matthew 25, which we're going to get to in a minute. But before we, before we get there, I want to talk a little bit about what happens in us when we go through this process. I don't like talking about this stuff, man, because it's true and it's gnarly and it's all throughout the church. And if you don't know me, you might think I'm being tough on the church. And my wife will tell you, Chatty will tell you, I love the church, man. I love the church. I love God's people. I love, I, I love every expression of the church. Because I know that if Jesus' name is lifted up, even if it's in the most cockamamie way, he's going to draw all people to himself. That's what he does. We're designed for that. But we can get so deceived in the church where all we think about is our own needs. And you might think, well, no, wait a second. Jesus loves me and cares about my needs. See, Satan will take anything and he'll maximize it and eclipse the everything. He'll take any small thing and he'll eclipse the everything. Some of us, we get so eclipsed by our own needs. We don't even know why we look at our phone half the time. We just pick it up. What if if 90% of the time you're looking at the phone, you're trying to be distracted away from the important thing, but you don't know that that's why you're picking it up? No, not me, Johnny. I look at the phone to stay connected to the important things. Well, then what about the people right here in your vicinity? What is it about your home? What is it about your neighborhood? What's about your job you can't stand? That you got to be looking at other things all the time. Why can't you be where your butt is, where God planted you? Because that's the sin of Laodicea in Revelation 3. They go to Jesus. Jesus comes to them and they say, Jesus, we have need of nothing. All of our needs are met. Praise your name. Hallelujah. And he says, because you say, I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing. And you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. He's going to fulfill that clause in a minute, but I'm going to pause there for a second. Beware if you become so tired like the disciples were in Matthew 24 that you start measuring God's proximity in your life based on whether your needs are met or not. Your spiritual power, it's over. At that point, it's over. You have none. Because what you're saying is until I feel you meeting my needs and see you meeting my needs, I'm impotent for the kingdom. 
I look through history and the great world changers all the way through history. Man, I don't see them with even clothes on their backs half the time. I mean, Ezekiel laying out there naked, man. I, th- I, think, I think about the great world change. This convicts me. I'm not preaching at you. This word has already ripped me apart. I told you I've never preached this anywhere before. This has been coming and coming and coming into my heart and in my thoughts again and again and again. We are the church in Laodicea. We measure God's proximity based off whether our needs are met or not. We don't want to be interrupted. We don't want to be distracted. And we've got to get out of that. And Jesus offers a way out. This is why I love Jesus. Jesus will always tell you the truth. He's never going to lie to you. And when the truth's really hard and then you sing that, you know, that worship song you got on loop, repeat one, you know, when you click that, just listen to the same thing, run that same vibe, that same vibe, that same vibe to distract yourself away from the deep truth that Jesus is teaching you. He'll let you do that. He'll let you do that because probably what's in the worship song is true. That's true. But there's a deeper truth there for you. A truth that takes you back into holiness. A truth that takes you back into full surrender. A truth that takes you back to becoming his vessel, his set-apart vessel. That he could put whatever, a vessel's a cup. He could put whatever he wants to put in that cup. He says, buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may become rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and that the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed and I salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. The church in Laodicea was blind, was wretched, was naked, and yet of the seven churches in Revelation, they had the most. They had the most. And this is the church that Jesus says he stands at the door and knocks. Here's my take. You ready for my take? I'm going to give you my take. When you say, I have need of nothing to Jesus, he knows within two milliseconds that the needs of others absolutely don't matter to you. How in the world can you say, you think there's such thing as other people's needs? I'm asking you. Do you honestly think there's such thing, if you're a member of the kingdom of God, as other people's needs? I'm going to say it again because some of y'all don't even know, you don't even understand what I'm saying. Because you're, Do you honestly think that your neighbor's needs are your neighbor's needs? See, that's the American view. That is not Jesus' view. The moment you disassociate yourself with the need of your neighbor, Jesus is outside. And he wants to come back in. He wants to come back into your heart. He wants to come back into your family, the family table. He wants to come back into your community and your church, your work, your calling. But if you look at the kingdom, what is the kingdom of God but being passionate and consumed with the needs of your brothers and sisters? Philippians 2 says, consider the needs of others as more important than your, than your own because that's what we see in Christ Jesus, who though he was God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but humbled himself. Even to death, yep. Even to death on a cross, yep. We are called to that. It's an amazing calling. And it it can wear you out. Even hearing me probably talk about it can make you feel a little tired. I know that. I know. I love you. I love you. I love you. The good stuff in life empties you out. And that's why we really really came up with the Matthew 25 challenge. Like, uh, raise your hand if you got to participate in the challenge this last week. Uh, that's awesome. That's awesome. I saw the opt-ins. I saw it was low. The opt-ins were low. Not judging or anything, but just they were low. They were low. I know that it's a weird thing to do. Maybe you didn't have a smartphone. Maybe you just were thinking, man, I'm not going to do that this week. We, I got to co-write the Matthew 25 challenge. It is designed around getting the needs of others back into your heart again. Yeah, it's simple. It's not, it's not like the change the world discipleship curriculum. But it's meant to take the, 
we're like, it's like we're in anesthesia. You ever come out of anesthesia and you're like that in-between point where you're kind of, oh, man, I see there's my family and I, I think I'm in a hospital right now. And you kind of know where you are. When you do the Matthew 25 challenge, you start realizing stuff. Like I did day three. The first time I did it, I've done it like seven or eight times now. I keep doing it. But the first time I did it, I told myself, I will lead my whole family through an epic Matthew 25 challenge journey. Man, I didn't pitch it to my wife right. She was sick. My kids were sick. I spent day three sleeping on the floor by myself. And then I was like, man, the floor is hard. That's what I honestly thought. The floor is hard. You you go into it kind of cocky. like, yeah, I can sleep on the floor. Man, I was 2 a.m. I was still awake. And then I remember looking over. I I remember I worked in Palm Springs that day. I had to drive back from Palm Springs, sleep under the floor, alone in the front room, and I turned and looked in my head, and behind my bed were two bookshelf speakers that my dad had given me, little bookshelf speakers that were worth more than any possession, any of the five sponsored children or their families that we have, any of them owned, and probably will ever own, and I literally forgot I had them in my house. That was an anesthesia awakening moment for me. You're not mimicking poverty, but you're waking up. You're waking up. So I don't know what your day challenge was for you. I don't know if it was water, only drink water that day. I don't know if it was uh, skipping lunch, skipping lunch. Um, Maybe on Friday you did not reach out to that person in need because the person in need got put in your heart. It's a toxic person you've been avoiding. You were afraid to call them, afraid for how long you'd be on the phone with them or how long they'd hold you. Not saying that judging. I've been there. I've been there. But Jesus is like kind of relentless about calling us back to people we avoid. Because that's where we get to see him. I mean, that's the answer. That's the answer. When do we see you, Jesus? When do we see you? This is the end of Matthew 25. I've gone back to that Matthew 24, Matthew 25 teaching. I'm not in here. I'm not over there. Don't be deceived. Well, then where are you? When do we see you hungry? When do we see you thirsty? Or a stranger, needing clothes, or sick, or in prison, did not help you? And it's the right question, because we want to see him. And this is Jesus' story. He's, this is the right question. And the king will reply, I tell you the truth, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. There's two places in the Gospels, as far as I can tell, that Jesus guarantees he shows up. In a special way, where two or three, not two or more, where two or three are gathered in my name, I'm there in their midst. I mean, he's with us right now, right? We're over three. But when there's two or three, there's something magical about that two to three group, that road to Emmaus group. There's two guys out there walking down the road. Jesus shows up in this way. It's deep. It's personal. It's intimate. And then he is every single time showing up in the eyes of the hungry. Every time. In the eyes of the thirsty. Man, John, some people, they, they, it's their own fault that they're hungry. Every time Jesus shows up in their eyes, we got broken theologies of the poor. We got broken theologies towards one another. All that stuff's got to be healed and redeemed. We were chosen, Pastor, as you led us through earlier. We didn't choose God. He chose us. We responded to his love. But then we go around talking about who's poor and deserves to be poor and who who help us, Jesus. And so this is what it's kind of done to my family because seeing Jesus is powerful. So these are, this is my family. This is an older pick. Um, there's my beautiful wife. Isn't she beautiful? That's right. You better amen. You're beautiful, baby. 
you think I'm actually buttering her up. I'm actually setting myself up because she, she, she always says I, I show pictures of her that are unflattering pictures when I preach. <laughs> so that was her deep into her, uh, her, her return to running with Team World Vision, you know, no big, no big deal, Perforate, uh, uh, perforated uh, abdominals, uh, multiple hernias, bifurcated abs, you know, big babies. Man, we had big babies. And uh, God calls her back in, and that's her breaking down in tears when that little window on her phone popped up was a dear friend of ours who donated to her run, blew her away. And that year was a crazy year because she broke her hand on a little, little meaningless run. I need that picture of you in the red jacket. I couldn't find it. But she's sitting on the ground on this short little run, and she's got this kind of funny look on her face, broke her hand, uh, wrist in two, two places. And I, I was like, well, in my mind, I thought, well, it's over. You can't. She hadn't done her 20-miler training run yet. So I was like, you, you can't do a 20-miler with a broken, with a broken uh, hand or wrist. And there she is with the cast on on the 20-miler training run. That's her on the run. <laughs> See, one of the reasons Laodicea wants their own needs met is because they want to look good. We focus, and again, don't be simple with me right now. Hear me out. We like to be shining examples of the people of God to those around us. If all of our needs are met, we don't have any problems. It's kind of like we're saying, well, see, God meets all of our needs. Oh, wow. We're so taken care of. And that's not actually how Jesus lived his life, embracing the poorest, embracing the most broken, embracing the most ostracized. So he kind of looked like a mess to the people who's needs have been met, which were the religious elite, right, who are eating out of, out of the ties, they're eating out of the, the sin offerings, you know, they're, they're taking care of, he's not, he's doing what he's doing, and, and so I looked at Amanda when she was doing this, and I thought, man, you look crazy, I, honestly, I th- this is crazy that you're doing this, when she broke her hand, the night she broke her hand, she'd raised $3,000 for kids to have clean water, that's 60 kids get clean water for life through World Vision's ministry, guess what she raised, well, i got to actually come back to that picture. Guess what she raised by their finish line? Over $15,000. 563 kids got clean water for life. So, so 30 to 60 to 100 fold, boom. Why? Because she's willing to not look good doing something. She's willing to let Jesus show up in her weakness. Why is that? I asked her that. She said these exact words. Anita is, the voice of God is hollering in my heart. Hollering was the word she used. Anita does not have water. That's one of our five sponsor kids with us in Manhattan Beach. Because you work for World Vision, you get to hang out with your sponsor kids in some cool environments, y'all. So don't be jealous, all right? Um, That's actually the perk of the job. It's not like, you know, know, we don't... don't, (laughs) You get, you get to hang out with your people in more intimate settings. You know, it's awesome. So, um, but I'll never forget her saying that because that's what sponsorship does. Remember, Jesus stands at the door and knocks. He's not knocking at the door of my wife's heart. And I'm not boasting about my wife. I'm celebrating what God's done. He's in her heart. And that's why she hears that voice calling her back to these relationships. Does that make sense? There's no shielding up. There's no, well, I've got my little thing I do here and I'm good for the poor. You know, no, she's open and available to his voice. And, uh, um, and so I do have to turn the corner here, the last kind of 
10 to 12 minutes because I want to talk about World Vision's development work because I do want to invite you today to open up your heart and let Jesus into your heart through a relationship with a sponsored child. And I'll tell you right now, we don't have enough kids for everybody present today. Um, I'm very transparent. The volunteers kind of learned that this morning when we did our volunteer orientation. Um, I, 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 sometimes things just come right out my mouth. Um, I wish we had more kids present, but we don't. We got the kids that we got, and I'm hoping every single person here sponsors a kid. We still have like forms you could fill out that look like this if you want to request a sponsored kid, but here's what's so special about today, which we normally don't get to do. Pastor Chad came to me a while back, a long time ago, and he just said, Johnny, uh, curious if we could have the kids come out of a single community, which we don't really do anymore that way, World Vision. And there's reasons why, which I'm not going to get into today. It sounds like, well, why wouldn't you do that? Because we've had churches say, we want to, this is our community, and then they've lost interest. They've gone Laodicean, and not Smyrna. If you know the church in Smyrna, it's an amazing church, all right? If you know your revelation, they've lost interest. Kids don't get funded, and lives, lives aren't transformed, all right? But I want to talk to you a little bit about how World Vision works, and then we're going to come back to the impact of having a relationship with a sponsored child, and then I'm going to give you the invitation. Amen? Amen. We good? Yeah. We all together? Yeah? All right. Y'all remember Steve Jobs, right? The late, great Steve Jobs. I will never invent an Apple pencil. Remember that? Y'all remember that? Why? Because we have the greatest pencil in the world right here. That, it sounded so good when he said it. But, but this is the problem. He promised we'd all be drawing like awesome sketches like this one on the left. But have you ever actually tried to draw on an iPad with your finger, this big old meaty finger, and you're trying to get like the line, and then you're trying to see under your finger because it doesn't have a fine point. Fingers don't have a fine point. Man, where's that line at? And there's no way to see it. And so all of our pictures look like little kid pictures. So we actually started to invent stylus. You, I'm not making this up. These sold in stores, guys. And it got a little, it got worse. Um, some of the stylus were a little violent. That's Jason Bourne from the first Jason Bourne movie. Um, doing what only he could do with a stylus, all right? Um, and then, praise God, the Surface, the Microsoft Surface was invented. A great tablet with a great stylus. I asked my wife, if I sell something on eBay, can I buy one? She said, yes, I got a used one from Fry's for a couple hundred bucks. I went to a World Vision event, and the first three hours of the event, those were my notes. It was an amazing thing. All the way over there, that's Michael Sieber, our new vice president, servant leadership paradigm on the right. Um, when I showed that to him, it was like, oh, it meant so much to him. I don't know how many times I've looked at it. But, um, but I got it in my notes. Why? Because there's no neurons in a stylus. There's something that happens in our brain when the tool, that's what technology is, when the tool that we have is not us. Our brains almost enter into a third space, and we're able to design and to see things clearly. It's kind of a magical thing. And so if you've not used the Apple Pencil yet, it really is a remarkable thing. They, they knocked it out the park. It's, it's life-changing, especially for folks who are nonlinear, who need that, like, paper environment to work around with. And sometimes that's, that's who we are, right? But this is important because you need the right hardware, and you need the right software. Listen to me now. You need the right hardware, and you need the right software. This is... At, the heart of what World Vision does. Software is the deep diving work we do in the hearts and minds of the villagers that we work with. 45,000 in your community. That's Mutomo, Kenya. That's your community. I was there in May. I'm going back there in, in January, all right? Mutomo is one of the most extremely rock poverty areas I've ever seen in my life. In my life, I, I was warned about it. 
and, and the expressions of sin are amazing. They're like terrifying. Like this one guy brewed alcohol there that was more powerful than crack cocaine. Yeah. And it was, destro- it was literally turning the men in the community into zombies. And through World Visions Christian, with, uh, discipleship work and some of the stuff we're doing, he found Jesus, right? And he doesn't do it anymore. And the men's lives are changed. The marriages are changed. And then we got microfinance and empowerment going on. All this really great stuff. But to come back to it, the question always is, who gets to hold the stylus? Who gets to hold the chalk? This is what separates World Vision. And not in a boastful way. I just have to, I have to be honest about the ministry I'm couched in because you're being invited to participate with it today. All right? So a lot of mission in the church is the church in the West goes to the field in need, tells them what they need to do to better their, their selves and their circumstances. We do some good work, and then we leave. All right? That's not what World Vision does. If you, have you seen the movie Hidden Figures? Anybody seen this movie? Yeah? I'm going to show this clip. It's coming up. It's coming up. I want to show you my favorite scene from Hidden Figures, all right? I'm going to start this clip right now. Here we go. This is when they're trying to calculate the go, no-go point for John Glenn's orbital trajectory. No woman has ever been in that room with those generals, let alone a black woman. Never been in that room. Watch what happens. So we have the vehicle speed, the launch window, and for argument's sake, the landing zone is the Bahamas. Should be enough to figure the go, no-go? Yeah, in theory, sir. We need to be past theory at this point. We'll be able to calculate a go, no-go with that information. When exactly is that going to happen? Catherine? Have a go at it? The goal point for re-entry is 2,990 miles from where we want Colonel Glenn to land. If we assume that's the Bahamas, 544 miles per hour of 46.56 degrees, 2,990 miles. Okay, so that puts your landing zone at 5. 0.067 0.067 degrees north, 77.3333 degrees west, <laughs> which is here. Give or take 20 square miles. I like your numbers. <clears throat> so when the University of North Carolina did studies over water projects, World Vision's projects lasted the longest, minimum 20 years. UNICEF was second place. We love UNICEF too. We respect them. Theirs were 13 years. But, but what, what makes the difference? The love of Jesus is on the cellular level of everything that we do. And our villagers do everything that we do. They hold the chalk. We don't take that chalk back. That's the way World Vision works. So when you sponsor a child... The money that you pay every month for the, child, for the sponsorship is funding the whole orbital trajectory for the community. Are you following me? Okay. John Glenn, he says, I like those numbers. What that means is I'm in submission to this plan. This plan directs me. That's what our field staff say. We're in submission to this plan. Then what we want to do is we want to be stewards of the vision of the people. We want to pour into that vision while we're equipping them with economic empowerment, child discipleship, training pastors, deep awesome water work, education work, the top medical facilities, everything, which I'm going to get to in a minute. It all gets touched. But that's how we do our work. Sometimes 
when you are the church of Laodicea and you do get that little itch to do some mission stuff, you usually will do it in a way that makes you look like Jason Bourne. You've got the stylus in your hand. You're going after the bad guy poverty. You look awesome when you do it, but when you're done, the bad guy's dead, you walk away. The truth is that globally, the bad guy's not dead. We've got to get the stylus out of our hands and get it in the hands of the men and women in the community who God's called to do this work. Katherine Johnson, she's been designed by God to have that moment her whole life. Her story's amazing. In fact, it goes even back to the generation before her, her mother and her grandmother. The generations before her, incredible how you see God's design just being unfolded in her life. But what happens if she doesn't get that moment? We want to give a community that moment. And this is Winfred from Mutomo, Kenya. Now, she, she actually is a World Vision staff. She was a sponsor child, polygamous marriage. All right, uh, her, her father, many, many wives. She barely knew her father. She became a World Vision sponsor child when she was young and found Jesus through World Vision's work. Now today, she leads development. She's the development director for 170,000 people in three different communities. That's Winfred. I got a great, that's my favorite picture of her. That's really actually more Winfred. She's a giant. When she laughs, the whole world stops. I mean, Oh, this, this woman of God, she's amazing. And in Mutomo, she's going to lead everybody through these eight questions. I've actually talked about these eight questions at Cornerstone before. I went back, it was my memory, but I went back and verified it in one of my older decks. And the first question is, who are we? The second question is, who are you? What is being done? What more can be done? The first four questions are about identity and identifying the challenges at hand. The second four questions, what can we do together? Who will contribute what? How are we going to manage that? Which is literally, what's the management structure going to look like? And then how does World Vision transition out? How are we going to transition out? We're having that conversation in the first conversation. It's not like a 10 years later, hey, by the way, we're out. No, the first conversation, every villager in the room knows we own our destiny. God will do this through us or it's not going to happen. All right? That's how we do it. But then, then there's this other rhythm. And I felt, Pastor, I felt led to bring this today. Just, just I don't know why, but just, I, I, just in case you got questions. This is the rhythm of then what development looks like. Our first phase is trust building. We have to answer all those eight questions before we begin. But we start with a trust building phase with the community. So in Mutomo, it's 45,000 people. Pretty large community, 40 kilometers by 40 kilometers. A lot of folks. We're going to build trust. And it's not, you know... Westerners, it's indigenous people to the community that work for World Vision that are going into the community building these relationships. Then we're going to do assessments over health, uh, spirituality. All the baselines are going to be set. Then we're going to prioritize needs. 99% of the time, water is number one. And I'm going to close today with a water story because I know water is close, close to your hearts. Um, and, but, not, but, but there are always other needs. So then after we set the priorities, we have to design the programs. And our staff does that with the villagers in partnership. Okay, what's going to work here? How are we going to do this? What are your kids thinking about there? And then we implement. That means we do the fun stuff. Everything starts getting built, made, and community gets transformed. But sometimes we're not doing it right. Sometimes there's broken things in the plan, so we have to reevaluate. used to be we reevaluated every four to five years. Now it's every year. Our field staff are so good at seeing the indicators that something's broken. They do the reassessment every year to make sure that the plan is working. And these are the different areas, Christian discipleship, water, mother and child health, economic empowerment, child protection, education, emergency relief. All those things are part of the plan, and sponsorship is one of the funding strategies for the plan. 
It's a majority funding strategy, but Team World Vision is another one. Some of you have run with Team World Vision. So Team World Vision funds go straight into that water bucket right there, okay? But child sponsorship touches them all. All right, I got to speed up a little bit. Can I tell you my water story from Mutomo, Kenya? Do it. Are you ready? It's a good story. That's why I'm saying you may not be ready. Oh, Johnny, come on, tell the story. You may not be ready, sucker. You, you, may not, you may not have your mind around the epic nature of this story. This is what a water project looks like, by the way. That's a water project. Those are the mothers and fathers who live in a community where 50% of their kids are dead by the age of five. This is not systemic poverty. I have a passion for indigenous homelessness in the U.S., I don't dangle that or boast about that. I'm telling you, that's in my heart. You want to talk about that more? I can talk to you about the work I've done. We deal with systemic poverty. This is where there are no systems. There's nothing. And people are facing life or death every day. That's why we have to begin with the parents. Right there, they're mapping out their region. Where should the water sources come from? And then we're, this is one of our guidebooks. This is actually not written by Kenyans, but Zambian pastors. Jesus, the source of living water. It's a really cool book that teaches all the different things about wash, water, sanitation, and hygiene, couched within a biblical story. And in this one, it's the Pool of Siloam. There's uh, personal applications. It's just great work. It's software. We call this software. It's awesome work, all right? But then it pays off as the Athi River intake. Ooh, man. I saw it for the first time in May. All right, in May. Check this out. First off, the intake. So that's the Athi River. Awesome, massive river. Famous for giant croc attacks on children, giant snake bites, rapes, and kidnappings. Because it's such a major water source, all the kids have to go to that river. So World Vision engineers coaching villagers drop this massive perforated pipe through the center of that river. Goes right, and it comes into this tank. Now, most of the work we're doing right now is solar-powered work. So that way, it's, 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 right, the energy comes from just being alive, just God himself, right? The gift of creation. But in this case, this is gasoline-powered. It is powered, okay? Because that water gets pumped two kilometers to what we call a pre-sediment plant, which this is a little picture of it. We're actually about 20 feet in the air on a second floor of this massive plant that I didn't have a good picture off my iPhone of. So this is what you get. Now, can you see the... A little hanging wall right there in the back of that tank. If you can't say yes. Okay, you're with me. Can you see the little crack in the wall behind it? Little, there's like two little walls right the little crack. So water shoots up that wall with the crack in it, and then it hits that hanging wall, separates the sediment from the water. Then the tank is on an angle. Our villagers built all this stuff, man. Some of the concrete was made from the rocks and the ground underneath our feet, all right? So the water then comes out, and then that water gets pumped from the pre-sediment tank another kilometer away, to the actual filtration station, and that's it. There's three tanks. I only got a picture of two of them, and then this massive sanitation platform. And do you see the pipeline, the lower left-hand corner? That's a gravity-fed pipeline, no power, over 40 kilometers to 65,000 people in two different communities. It's scalable for 100,000. It's scalable for 100,000. I know, I know we got our ministries out there, and I, and I do love them. I'm not saying this in a pretentious spirit, that are doing smaller water projects that kind of help families get by year to year. This is what we want, guys. We want them to have what we got. We want them to never have to worry about water access again. And we just found out, and I don't have a picture of it. It's breaking my heart. But one of our sponsor kids, Anita, the one that God was hollering in her heart that she doesn't have water two months ago, got a literally a water spigot at their hut, literally at their hut. 
why is that important? Some of you don't know that these kids walk on average six to eight hours a day, every day, searching for water. It's about 10 to 12 kilometers round trip. It's the number one source for sexual violence in the world. Um, number one source for human trafficking in the Congo. Now, not in Kenya. In Kenya, it's the number one source for sexual violence. And the last thing I want to share with you is just a little bit about Christian discipleship. Um, this is very brief. I know I'm, I'm, I'm on my time. But uh, let me just review. We're talking about our development model, our strategy for development. We're focusing in on one of the sectors. That's water. That was the Athi River intake story, okay? It's changed history in Mutomo, Kenya. Want to grow it to 100,000. It's at 65,000 capacity, 65,000 people right now. Now I want to talk to you about a moment I had this last May meeting a pastor named Moses, all right? This is Moses. Pastor Moses, he spoke to my team. I got, I've got this journal. It's a digital journal. It's a Logos Bible software, but it's, it's my journal. And I have about 300 pages written in that about the two verses I'm going to show you right now. Um, I am the way, the truth, and the life. You know, I have all this stuff written in the church. You know, we've made it so that it actually means I am the truth, the life, and the way. I am the truth. That's what the church does. We teach, we teach, we teach, we teach, we teach. Truth, 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 truth. I am the life. We promise eternal life. We promise a better life. We promise holiness. I am the way. Well, we'll leave following Jesus, touching lepers, and all that stuff for the end. Maybe a short-term mission trip, blah, blah, blah. I'm not saying Cornerstone follows that model. I'm saying that is generally what I experienced in the over 40 churches I'm in in a, in a calendar year with World Vision, all right? All this passionate stuff in my notes. Pastor Moses got up there and blew my world away. I was writing baby stuff. He was literally 10 miles down God's road, heading towards that holy mountain, diagnosing not just what had been wrong. That took him 30 seconds. Now he's talking about what life is like when it's restored, what life looks like when the way is restored. And you know what it's like? This is what it's like. This passage, he says, lives in the hearts and minds of every pastor, parent, and child in the community. This is the passage. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. Now I want you to think again about the earth they're living in. No systems, no development. Now let's read it again. Are you ready? In fact, can we read it together? Can we do that? Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And this is what he says about it. I've sprung that one on you. I can go back. We have this. It's real short. I don't want you to hear what he says. A lot of stagnation because something must be spoken. Something must be done by me and you. We have the skills. We have the talents. We have the gift. We are waiting for us to move in such places where we have complete institutions, complete families, for complete things. But at least they are having a lot of stagnation. They are lacking the growth. So that we give some direction. Two holy teachings there that you may not have missed. First, he says, something must be spoken. Did you hear him say that? Something must be spoken. Something in darkness has to be spoken. Let there be light. Something's got to be proclaimed. And the second is that word stagnation. Don't skip over that word. For a man living in that community, talk about stagnation in the community. Stagnation, what you talking about? There's no stagnation. This is just life. This is who we are. No, no, no. That's not what God created us to be, remember? He has called us into the way, the truth, and the life. We're going to the Father through him, and we're stagnant. 
And we got to awaken. We got to speak the word, and it will become into a reality. This, these are the hearts and minds of our pastors. These are the hearts and minds of our people. And these are the hearts and minds of the parents of our sponsored kids. There's a picture of the 44 pastors we got to meet that went through the Scott University training program. And, uh, um, and then just the last verse, this is the foundation that we want to lay. No one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. This is the same passage where Paul talks about uh, gold being refined by fire, which calls out that Laodicean thing. You need gold refined by me, purified by me. The, the foundation has got to be Jesus. What's going on today for you? Where are you at in all this? Some of this stuff may have been even hard for you to pay attention to. I know I told you it was heady, and I told you... I did, I've never given this message before, and it may, I, I, I may have to pray over it, work on it, but let me tell you today, God wants you to see his son. And not just in your devotional time in the morning. That's such an important time. I rebuild my life every morning in that time, okay? But he wants you to see him where he promised he would be to his disciples who were tired. Discouraged in Matthew 25. He wants you to be in direct relationship with the poor and the broken. If you're not, you have an opportunity to be today by sponsoring a child. And so I want to talk to you about how that works. And there's my last picture. That's me and Anita. Anita Jotich Bartuin. She's come. She's traveled the U.S. with me. She's, <clears throat> she's an amazing kid. But can you grab one of these little things, flyer, writing things? P- please, get one in your hand. Get one in your hand. Doesn't mean you're, it's not going to hurt you. Just get it in your hand. And I mean that lovingly. I, I didn't mean to be cracking a joke. I, right there, <clears throat> right there, what you hold in your hand, for some, this is the most exciting piece of paper you have held in your hand in decades. Because filling this out puts you into a relationship with a kid that you are going to impact and transform forever. I don't say this boastfully, guys. This blows my mind. I broke down weeping on my knees when I found out about it. But Anita also got a road leading up to her hut. Guess who they named the road after? Huddle family. What? And you know, the old school Johnny, I would have said this. Oh, no, they should have named it after Jesus. He gets all the glory. Listen, Jesus shows up in our relationships with the poor, the broken, the blind, the captive, the oppressed, the hungry. God God wants you and your name to be on a road into the kingdom waiting for the child out there at that table. And this is how you open the door to that road, by by filling it out, by saying, I'm in. Johnny, it's 39 bucks a month. Yeah, all right, man. Can't go to Chili's once a month. Yep, that's about it. No Chili's. I love Chili's, too. I'm not hating on Chili's, man. Let me tell you, that's a sacrifice. It's actually not a sacrifice. It's not a... Big deal at all. It's 39 bucks a month. Is my relationship with this kid for the rest of my life? Nope. When World Vision transitions the community, when they're done, you will be notified and the, the celebration will be epic. Do I have a real relationship with the kid? Yep. Or my World Vision website, which you don't need to write that down, but there's a website you get now. It is so cool. It's almost like Marco Polo. If you guys got the Marco Polo app where you can get up on it and there's little videos left there from your kiddo. And the, and the communication is better than it's ever been. And the insight into the community is better than it's ever been. And Johnny Huddle's going to the community in a couple months. So if y'all want me to take all these special letters from you to the community and deliver them, I will. Oh, and it will be a party. But I want to invite you today to see Jesus in the heart and the life of a sponsored child. 
I know you may be sponsoring now. I am absolutely inviting the people who sponsor now to sponsor a child. I think to do it in a community that you're focused in is going to be powerful. And we've never done sponsorship at Cornerstone. This is brand new. Like, I, we've never done this before. And so, like, we got one sponsor kid. We got five sponsor kids. Um, we could afford four. So just, just to let you know, that's what the Huddle family is. We have six because of the chosen. Wow. Six kids. <laughs> well, the Lord will provide. The last one was Salinas from Ecuador. And uh, um, Sydney is just in love. Sydney, one of the sponsor kid, our 11-year-old. And it's changing the hearts of our kids. It's changing the, the heart of our family. Um, and my, my daughter's running the half marathon this year. And now I'm talking about my family, which means I'll never shut up. So I'm going to pray, and then I'm going to pass it to whoever needs to take it. <clears throat> but I'm going to ask you today not to get distracted by the clock or the watch later. Come on out. We don't have enough for everybody. But even if we don't have one for you, if you fill this out, we'll get you one from Utomo on the flip. All right? God, will you be with our family today? Will you be with the children, the mothers and fathers who are praying for every single person here at this gathering today? That they would hear from you and be stoked to enter into a relationship with a child they've never met. Lord Jesus, will you anoint that relationship and anoint our hearts? Because what we really want deep down is to see you. We want to see you. Now, God, we're not saying we, we want to get past the sponsored child so we can see you, Jesus. The amazing thing is you kept your identity secret in Matthew 25. We had to ask you where were you. And, Father, we want to see the child be in a relationship with the child. But in doing that, we know we're going to be seeing you. So help us to step through fear, step through uncertainty, to be bold and brave in the spirit. And to see this community transform forever. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Let's, let's stand to our feet. Let's stand to our feet. Come on. Look to the people on your left and your right. Wow, I did the right for, oh, I better mute. Mute the preacher, please. To your left and your right, look again one more time. And just whisper to them as you go, why isn't there some street named after you somewhere? And as you go, go to the table. Let's empty the table of the kiddos. If you need someone to pray with you today, Come on up. We'll linger here for a minute, but it's right through those, these doors out here in the center. Amen. So God bless you. I love you guys. Uh, if you need some prayer, come on up and talk. Johnny will be back at the table as well. So have an amazing time. Give it up one more time for John and World Vision. Love you guys. Have a great week.